Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Bryce. And I'm Mike. And today we're going to tackle the second half of Alma's letters to his three sons. In our previous podcast, we addressed his letter to Helaman and Shiblon. Now we address his letter to a wayward son, one who's committed a very serious sin. His name is Corianton, and all of today's material are letters from Alma to his son Corianton. And he starts off with brilliant advice for parents. If you've ever struggled with how to discipline a child, this is how he jumps into it. And chapter 39 is a beautiful pattern, Mike, isn't it? It is. Alma 39 really is a pattern for how we can parent, how we can help our children when they mess up. And I really like the idea of letting the consequences do the teaching. And as parents, we're a guide on the side to kind of help them see the consequences, see how they could change their behavior and get them moving forward. One thing I noticed, I I remember one time I went to a uh, seminar where they talked about parenting, and they said, if you parent with anger, it's like your kids don't even listen to what you're saying. All they, They sense that emotion, and that just kind of overrides any of the logic of what you're trying to communicate to them. So my image of Alma 39 is Alma is not angry. He is just parenting with love, but he's also, he's showing him, number one, here's what your choice was. Here's what you did. The second thing he's showing him is, here's what went wrong. Here's the result of your choices. And then the third thing is, here's how to fix it. I guess you could probably add a fourth thing, and I'm going to have, Bryce, you're going to talk about this too, I hope, uh, how, how to have hope, how to move forward and Dad not still just, loves you. Mom still loves you. Yeah. Like, Jesus still loves you. Yeah. They have to walk away saying, this can be fixed. Here's how you fix it. And I love you, son. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what he did first. So... What exactly did he do? And so in Alma 39, we've all read it, or if you haven't, I would encourage you to read Alma 39. But I like teaching it this way, especially to young people, because I can say, hey, this is a great way you can come to self-reflect. If there's something in your life that you don't like, make a list and sit down and go, okay, what went wrong? What was the choice that I did? And how can I fix it? And then talk to people who can help you with this. When I talk to parents, I say, hey, this is great parenting advice, right? Talk to your child about, here's what went wrong, here's what their choice was, and here's how to fix it. So as far as what he did or his choice, look at Alma 39.2. One through four, you'll find, here's what you did that was wrong. And then five and six is, here's why it's wrong. Here's some information you need about, this is why that's wrong in our family. This is what's wrong with doing that. And then seven through 14-ish is, here's what you need to do to fix it. I like to read them and even with a, with a marking pen and just write down some notes or numbers. And so I have a little number one next to verse two. Look what it says. For you did not give so much heed to, unto my words as did thy brother among the people of the Zoramites. So in other words, he didn't really listen to his father. And I want to point out, Mike, that it's you didn't give so much heed. It's not that he obeyed at zero percent. It's that he began to compromise, and he's obeying at 99%. It's that very first compromise that says, well, I don't have to do everything Dad says. If you're content with 99% obedience, then 99% will easily lead to 98%. And so I think part of the number one here is you justified a small little compromise, a small little deviation. 
And if you're talking about safeguards that lead to immorality, that's a big one. As soon as 99% obedience is okay, boom, there's the first road. There's the first uh, safeguard that you've crossed over because you've, you've created this, it's okay to be 1% sinful. It's okay to not obey 100%, and that's where it starts, is it's the compromise. So if you're okay with 99% obedience, pretty soon that's 90, and then 80, and then he can get you down to zero. Yeah. So he definitely is headed in that direction. He, he forsakes the ministry. That's the middle of verse 3. It says that he did forsake the ministry and did go over into the land of Siren among the borders of the Lamanites after the harlot Isabel. So there's a few things here. He forsakes the ministry. He physically moves over to this other location, to this other land. I'll talk a little bit later about the meanings of these words, but I find it interesting that in the Book of Mormon, Mormon, as the editor, does not give us very many names of females. There's basically six of them, and Isabel is one of them. The other five are Sarah and Sariah, and then you have Mary and then you have Eve, and then you have Abish. And that's it. There's only six mentioned. And so I think Mormon is actually telling us a sermon by giving us her name. And so we'll get into that later. I think that's a, a sub-message to the main message here. And so he forsook the ministry, and he physically moved. And I think that this is a big problem, because this is a type of his apostasy. He's now leaving the path, right? And I think there's two ways we can point at that. Number one, by forsaking the ministry, he's giving up the things that hold us on the straight and narrow path. He's giving up. I, have, I rarely see anyone who leaves the church who's reading their scriptures every day diligently and praying. And so forsaking the ministry means, to me, you let go of the things that you're supposed to do that keep the Spirit flowing into your life. That's the next problem. One problem is you justified a little bit of sin. And the next problem is you stopped doing the things that bring the Spirit. You stopped the reading of your scriptures and your prayers. And you don't realize the impact that that has until all of a sudden you're in Isabel's doorway. But you stopped letting the Holy Ghost in. And then the third one is you went where you shouldn't have gone. If you're somewhere that you shouldn't be, odds are you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing. You just should always be where you should be. David started his problem by not going to war. He should have been to war with all the warriors. Had he been where he should have been, he never would have had the problem with Bathsheba. So I love those simple three. Number one, he says, don't compromise in obedience. Number two, make sure you have that constant flow of spirit coming into your life. And then number three, always be where you should be. The next one, verse 4, it talks about, she did steal away the hearts of many, but this was no excuse for thee, my son. And I'm just going to massage that verse a little bit and say, maybe that's what Corianton's doing. He's making an excuse. And so I think a lot of times for us, we sometimes want to make ourselves the exception to a rule. I remember President Packer one time talked about this, and he talked about a a rule or, or a behavior that we need to work on. And then someone said, well, what about the exceptions? And listed a bunch of them. And He said, well, first, when you're teaching, illustrate the rule. And then at the end, if someone has a particular question or concern, you can talk about those. But if you start with the exception, everyone thinks they're the exception. So in essence, he's kind of excusing himself. He's like, well, 
okay, I know it applies, but it doesn't apply to me. I can do what I want. I think that's a common trait that we have. We seek to be the exception. And you can always tell when repentance is genuine, because when repentance is genuine, they say, I have no excuse. I did this, and I have no excuse. It's those excuses that kind of say that we don't have a repentant heart. Well, it's not my fault, or someone else made me do it. It's the excuses that say, no, you're not quite where you are with repentance. And so I love that, that he made excuses. And as soon as you start making excuses, sin is at the door. Yeah. So verse 5, he emphasizes the importance or the seriousness of it. He says, Know ye not, my son, that these things are an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood. Now, I think there's a lot more going on in verse 5 to just immorality. I'm going to say this. I think that this has to do with overall apostasy and overall leading the hearts of people to not believe in Jesus Christ. There's a really great paper by Michael Ash called The Sin Next to Murder that will source in the show notes if you want to read it. To me, verse 5, is a, it's a bigger thing. I think what he's saying to Corey Anton is, you leaving the ministry, you leading the hearts astray, you're apostatizing. You are leading people towards darkness. That is a real issue. And so verse 5 is essentially, as a parent, he's emphasizing the seriousness of this. And why? I think Corey Anton, where he went wrong was he probably made light of it. Now for me, this is you know my commentary, I think in today's society, we live in a world where Morality and chastity is totally made light of, wouldn't you say, Bryce? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, we justify, we excuse. Yeah. Because it's acceptable by the world, then that can't be so bad among the Latter-day Saints, and we justify it. Yeah, and I mean, it's in our shows, it's in our movies, our music, everywhere, and I think the adversary is working very hard to say, hey, this stuff doesn't matter, we can make light of it, and in essence, the Book of Mormon is really riding the ship, as it were, culturally, and saying, no, this, you know, you're, you may live in a society that makes light of morality, and Corianton may be making light of it, but this is not something that is to be taken lightly. This is serious stuff. And so that's essentially what he did. Can I add one, Mike? Yeah. Let me throw one more in. Back in verse 2, he said, thou didst go on unto boasting in thy strength and in thy wisdom. And I think this is a major one. This is a major road to transgression. And if you want to put up a safeguard, I go back to Peter. Do you remember the night where Jesus said, all of you are going to be offended by me? And Peter's response was, not me. Though all men should, though I won't. In other words, everyone else might have a problem, but I won't. That's what I think Alma's saying here, is you boasted in your own strength to resist temptation. So Peter has this problem that, yes, everyone else might be offended, but I won't. And Jesus clarifies that and says, Peter, not only will you be offended, but you will deny knowing me. And Peter was vehement, though I should die with thee, yet would I not offend thee. Now, wait a minute. Isn't Jesus, shouldn't we listen to the Savior? Isn't he trying to raise a concern? Hey, there's a problem here. If you go to the party, you may end up drinking. You may end up doing something stupid. No, mom, everyone else might. The reason, you know, we say, well, these movies are unacceptable. We should not attend these movies. And people will say, well, I don't have a problem. It's that temptation to say everyone else might have a problem, but I won't have a problem that gets us into the wrong environment. Peter's overconfidence caused him to put himself in a vulnerable position. And when you're overconfident in your ability to resist temptation and you put yourself in a compromise, quite often sin follows. And so I think that's a big one. If we're trying to list, hey, 
Here are the safeguards that prevent us from going down the path of immorality. That's a big one. To say to yourself, I don't know if I would be strong enough in that environment, so I'm going to stay out of the environment. But it's when you boast in your own strength and you say, oh, I can watch that movie and it won't have an effect on me. I can look one time at that website and it won't have an effect on me. And boom, there's the foolish moment. That's the moment that I call rooster moments, where the rooster's crowing, and you're realizing that you put yourself in a vulnerable position. And so I would add that to the list, is don't, don't think you're so strong, over-inflate your ability to resist, deflate the seriousness of the temptation, and put yourself in a compromising pr- position. It takes a lot of humility to just say, hey, I'm weak here, and this is something I'm going to work on. If I'm an alcoholic, I definitely don't hang out in the bar, and I definitely keep that out of my house. One of my favorite examples, because it's just kind of non-threatening to people, is the analogy of Fast Sunday. If it's Fast Sunday, I know my weakness. I'm a huge eater. I love food. So what do I do? I stay out of the kitchen. Why? It's not that I hate the kitchen, right? I kind of put a, a star next to that verse, it, you know, don't boast in your own strength. What about the next thing, the result? What were the results? And in case he missed it, Alma just breaks it down. Look in verse 7, where he says, I would not dwell upon your crimes to harrow up your soul. In other words, decisions cause pain when you make wrong decisions. A lot of times they can cause pain. Now, sometimes we can make good decisions that cause pain. But in this circumstance, we're talking about Corianton's wrong choices, and they cause pain. You know, if everything in my life is coming apart and my relationships are broken, it's really good to self-reflect and ask myself, okay, what am I doing? Instead of blaming someone else and saying everyone's out to get me, if my relationships are broken and everyone's upset, it's a really wise thing to sit and self-reflect and just ask myself, okay, what could I do differently? How could I change? Especially in interpersonal relationships or in marriages. Sometimes, you know, you might have a time in your marriage where it's rocky or things are struggling. And I think sometimes the prayer is, Heavenly Father, please change my spouse. Make my spouse to conform to what I want. And I think a real humble prayer is to sit down and and talk with your Heavenly Father and say, what do I need to change? Because I can't change my spouse. I can only change me. And so that's one. Uh, The next one, look at verse 9. And now, my son, I would that you should repent and forsake your sins and go no more after the lust of your eyes, but cross yourself in all these things. For except you do this, you can no wise inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Corianton, if you stay on this road, where will it lead? You won't be in the kingdom of God. And I really like to do this with my children when they sit and ask questions about where they want to head and the choices they want to make in their life. So I'll sit down with my sons and say, well, do you want the kind of life where that's leading? Or would you rather be on this path? And I think those are really good dinner table conversations with your kids, not in a judgmental sense. We're not here to condemn, but we're here to help our children to see, man, what road are you on? Where are you headed? And, you know, thankfully enough, we live in a world where we can see this. It's not the ancient world where the average lifespan was 30 or 35, right? We live a lot of times to an old age, and we can see a lifetime of choices, and we can see where that leads us. And then finally, look at verse 11. To me, this is the big one. To me, this is the root of the problem as far as the depth of the result of the choices. And that's verse 11, where he says, don't suffer yourself to be led in this passive manner. Don't be led. Middle of the verse, it says, Behold, my son, how great iniquity you brought upon the Zoramites. 
For when they saw your conduct, they would not believe in my words. In essence, because of your behavior, Corianton, not only did you forsake the ministry, but you've led people astray. And to me, I see that as such a problem. If you're outwardly fighting against truth, and you're outwardly just going against it, and you're causing people to be spiritually killed, that kind of apostasy is grievous. This, verse 11, you are spiritually killing people. And so to me, I see that as, that's the big result. And that's the big fix. That's the thing that you've got to fix. So if Alma's trying to say, here's what you need to do next, clearly one thing he needs to do is fix that problem. And I wanted to point out, I I love in verse 9 that there's a skill here. Alma seems to be saying, okay, let me tell you what you need to do. On the list of here's the things that you need to do, he says, you need to go no more after the lust of your eyes, but cross yourself. And I love that he said, the lust of your eyes. And I would take everyone to Eve and the forbidden fruit back in Moses chapter 4, and I would focus on the verbs. Notice this process. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Tell us where you are, right? I'm in Moses 4, 12. This is Eve and the forbidden fruit. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it became pleasant, there's the second verb, to the eyes, and a a tree to be desired to make her wise, she took the fruit and did eat and gave. So let me just point out six verbs here. See, become pleasant, desire, take, eat, and give. Now watch that general process. It starts with the eyes. We see evil. And if, we, if it just stays in our eyes, I would suggest that that's probably not a sin. You cannot be guilty for a sin that you incidentally see and not knowing that it was there. You click on a link and a website comes up and you see something you haven't transgressed. It's in your eyes. But the question is, what do you do when it's in your eyes, because the next verb is became pleasant. And where does it become pleasant? Not in the eyes. It doesn't become pleasant in the eyes. It becomes pleasant in my mind. So it's gone from my eyes to my mind. I'm thinking about I saw it, and now I'm thinking about it. And boom, there's the problem. You let it go from your eyes to your mind. And now the next verb is desire. So saw, See, become pleasant, and then desire. So where do things become desirable? In our hearts. It's gone from my eyes to my mind to my head, and now it's in my heart. Sin is in my heart. And then it goes to my hands. Now I'm doing things associated with that sin. She's holding the fruit in her hands. And when it gets to your hands, it so easily goes from your hands into your mouth and you partake. So the question is, where's the best place to stop this? Where's the easiest place to stop sin? Well, I'm going to do everything I can to avoid seeing sin by being in the right place. Hence Alma's advice, be in the right place. Do what you should be doing, and you'll avoid seeing and hearing and being exposed to sin. But when you see sin, I would suggest the easiest thing to do is to go no more after the lust of your eyes. In other words, don't let it into your head. The moment it goes into your head, it starts a chemical process. Now, thoughts are electrical. Thoughts come and go with the speed of electricity. They are easy to replace. May I suggest that 
Thoughts are electrical and can be changed very quickly. You can only think one thing at a time. And by controlling what you are thinking about, you are also controlling what you're not thinking about. So if there's something that goes to your eyes and I want to keep it out of my mind, then I control what's in my mind and I don't let that in my mind because you can't think two things at the same time. By controlling what I'm thinking about, I am controlling what I'm not thinking about. But the problem is once it gets into your mind, once it's turned, now it becomes chemical. Now hormones are released and emotions are released. And once it becomes chemical, it's a whole lot harder to change. So thoughts are easier to change, but the window in which you have to change them is so rapid. You have to immediately take control. If it gets into your head and it becomes a a thought that you're thinking about, now it becomes chemical. Now emotions are involved, hormones are involved, chemicals are flowing throughout your body, and that's going to be a whole lot harder to stop. But it doesn't mean we can't. You can change the desires of your heart. If it's in your heart, you can stop it from going to your hands. You can change, you can get it out of your heart. It's difficult, but you can. And then once it's in your hands, the next step is so easily to take. But you can stop it from going from hands to mouth. And the idea here is don't commit the sin. There is hope at the very end. But the point I'm trying to make is, Alma says, look, you've got to learn to control your thoughts. You've got to not let it go from your eyes into your head, and then into your heart, into your hands, and then into your mouth where you consume it. I like that. I like that uh, verse 11 where it says, suffer not yourself to be led. That's a passive way to describe leading, right? You can lead or you can be led, or in the words of Second Ephi, you can act or you can be acted upon. And so I think what you're talking about, Bryce, is so applicable when it comes to all kinds of behaviors, and they can be spiritual or they can just be behaviors you want to work on. Have you ever had anybody like say just the right thing to motivate you to change? I'm reading a book right now that just, there's this one line in the book where it just said to me, Mike, when are you going to do this? And the line was simply this, you need to write down, if this is what you want to do, you need to write down what you're going to do about it. And for how long? And for me, I wrote on a, on a piece of paper, I'm going to practice this skill for 20 minutes a day. And I wrote it down. And since I did, I haven't not done that thing. But if I think, man, it would be really nice one day to know this or to know that. And you just think you kind of wish it, you're kind of suffering yourself to be led. You know, I, wh- whatever it is you, the listener, are struggling with, I really like verse 11. It's an active invitation. Don't be led. Go and make a choice. Grab the, the situation by the horns and, and go and do that. I like cross yourself. That's, to me, deny yourself. It's not genuflecting like we, we see in some religious traditions, but it's denying yourself of these things. The Book of Mormon invites us to kill the natural man, not to fall in love with him. And I think we live in a world today where if it hurts my feelings, then it must be bad. Anything that hurts my feelings or my personal space. And the Book of Mormon is right in my face saying, Mike, I'm going to make you uncomfortable and, you know, welcome. And then finally, notice what he says about his brothers. He tells them, counsel with them. Look at what it says in verse 10. Counsel with your elder brothers in your undertakings. Now, I don't know if Alma knows this is going to happen, but a year after he gives us, roughly a year after, he's gone. Maybe Alma knows that, hey, I'm not going to be around a long time. But I really like this as an invitation to people. If there's something you're struggling with or something you want to acquire, maybe a skill, you need to go to somebody who has that skill. 
If you know somebody who's really good, for example, let's say they're, they've conquered the weight loss path, then who are you going to talk to? Well, somebody who knows what they're doing. And so in this instance, Alma is trying to, I don't think he's trying to denigrate Corey Anton and say, you're such a bad, you know, of the brothers, you're the worst one. But I think what he's trying to do is invite him to improve. Surround yourself with strong people. Surround yourself with support. And I think it's so funny is when we make mistakes in our sinful act, when we've done something dumb, we have this tendency to isolate and we hide. And I think that's natural. I don't want people to, I just don't want to be around people. But the advice here is, no, this is when you need strong people. You need family. You need friends. So make sure that they're involved in your life. This, more than, this moment more than any other moment is when you need your good friends and you need your family. Don't run away from them. Involve them in your life. Reach out and be strengthened by them. It's interesting that he says the same thing to Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail. He sends him to his friends. Your friends stand by you. You're not like Job. In other words, this is the moment where you need friends. This is the moment where you need to surround yourself by people who care and will support and love you. This is not a, sh- this is not a burden you can handle all by yourself. You need help, and there are people in your life who can help you. I like an AA. They have a sponsor, and you can call your sponsor at 2 in the morning and say, man, I'm jonesing for a drink, and your sponsor talks you off the cliff. And I think everybody needs somebody like that. I really think this is one of the functions and purposes of our church is we get together, and my favorite lessons are where we're in a situation where we're talking about something, and all of a sudden, have you ever had this happen where all of a sudden it gets real? Like we're talking about, oh no, real, I'm struggling. And then you see somebody in your ward who you think in your mind's eye, they're like this perfect parent, and they break down and they're like, I'm, I'm failing, and here's where I'm doing it wrong. I think it's important for us to be real with people. And, and if you're vulnerable. struggling, yeah. Vulnerable. That's, that's, yeah. It's that moment of vulnerability that invites everyone to help to be your strength. Because speaking, you know, those moments in church where someone's been vulnerable, what is almost without fail the universal reaction of everyone else in the room? They run, they reach out, they support. When you're vulnerable, you open yourself up and people can run in and help you out. It's that willingness to be vulnerable that I think we need, especially in our sinful moments. I need help with this. I am weak here. And, and by being vulnerable, I invite other people to strength. It's, it's Ether 12.27 again. When you recognize your sin, when you recognize your weaknesses, you invite strength and the Lord can help them become strong. Now, starting in verse 15, you've got to see this beautiful connection. Starting in verse 15, he says, And now, my son, I would say somewhat unto you concerning the coming of Christ. Now, you could read that as, why of the sudden would you bring up the coming of Christ in this chapter? Or you can see the message here that, son, Jesus will still come into your life. Let's talk about the coming of Christ into your life. You have not cut him off. There is hope. You can fix this. Jesus does love you and will be with you again. So let's talk about the coming of Christ into your life. And so I think the message here is children need to be disciplined. They need to be taught what they did wrong. They need to understand how wrong it was and why it was wrong and why in this family is that a rule. And then they need to be guided on how to be, on how to fix the problem. But they need to know that mom and dad still care and they need to know that Jesus still cares. And so I just love that 15 through 19 is all about the coming of Christ. You wouldn't bring that up in this chapter if you weren't trying to say to your son, that Jesus still loves you, and there is still hope, 
and you can fix this. And when you do, Jesus will be back in your life with the Spirit, and you can have that gift again. Whatever discipline you give them, they need to know that mom and dad still love them and that there is hope and that this can be a learning experience and they can get better. And I just love those last four or five verses from Alma. It's awesome. Before we go to Alma 40. You got to tell us about Isabel. You've, we, we, we you've gotta, piqued my curiosity. We, we gotta One of down. the six women that Mormon mentions in the Book of Mormon. So why would he use the name Isabel, Mike? I don't think it's coincidental. And here's why. He only gives us six. Why is he giving us this girl's name? And Isabel is too closely related to Jezebel to ignore the pattern here. Yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence. And I think what Mormon's doing by dropping that name is he's inviting us to go to our Old Testament, dig it out, read it, and ask ourselves, what's the lesson? What are the Isabels in our life? And how do we avoid them? Everything Bryce is saying, like all the relevance is there. And then it's also played out in the King's narrative. And so by using the word Isabel, he doesn't have to tell the whole story of Jezebel because he'll get us to go find the story of Jezebel and make a connection. In the book of Kings, we have this king named Ahab, and he marries this woman. She's a Sidonian. She is from—she's royalty. She comes from Tyre. Tyre was this place in the ancient Near East that was like the Amazon.com of the ancient world. It had all the trade and everything was there. And it was this island off the coast of today, modern day Syria. And you couldn't get in. It was, it was uh, surrounded by water and no one could get in. And so it was a perfect place to send your wares because it was secure. And so they became super wealthy. And so there's all these woes or these prophecies against Tyre in the Old Testament. Well, Jezebel comes out of this. She comes out of this place. Actually, her name is not Jezebel. It's, it's pronounced Jezebel by English speakers of the Bible, but it's actually Isabel, actually, because there's no Degesh in the bait. So it's Isabel. And in 1 Kings 16, we read that Ahab marries her, and it says this. In verse 30 of 1 Kings 16, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And so the author of the king's narrative is really trying to paint Ahab as just the worst king ever so far. And what does he do? Verse 31 says, he took his wa- to his wife, Isabel, the daughter of the king of the Zidonians, and he went and he worshipped Baal and worshiped him. And then it says that he made a grove. And there's a lot going on there. But the 17th chapter is the story of the woman and she's hungry and and Elijah takes care of her. But then we get to the 18th chapter of 1 Kings and that's the conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But at the end of that conflict, and this is the thing we don't teach in Sunday school, Elijah kills these prophets. He goes and he and he takes him out. In verse 40, it says that he slew those prophets at the brook Kishon. And then he leaves. He goes and he hides. And 1 Kings 19, verse 12, it talks about the still, small voice of the Spirit. But then, after this, we get this whole narrative in chapter 21 of 1 Kings, where Jezebel basically kill, has a guy killed so that her husband can have his vineyard, and she's just not a good character. And then if you go down to verse 23, there's a prophecy that's given that the dogs are going to eat her. And that prophecy is fulfilled in 2 Kings 9. And so you can read 1 Kings 21 and go read 2 Kings 9 and see how that happens, how she's killed, Ahab and his descendants are killed. But what I want to talk about is that name, and that name can mean a lot of things. We think the name literally means, where is the prince? And well, what does that mean? You know, what's going on with that? 
it really is kind of two words put together. It's either e or i, and i is this word where, and then you have zavul, which is the prince or exalted. There's this whole other religion that's this parallel cult or religion that's parallel to following Yahweh, and it's the worship of Baal. The word Baal or Baal means husband or prince or the exalted one. And tell me if this sounds familiar, if you've ever heard this story. The story of Baal is the story of this God who's up in the heavens and he's the son of El. And there's this battle with this character named Yam, which is the Hebrew word for sea or chaos. And El says, what are we going to do about the chaos? To me, this is like the foundation, Bryce, of pretty much every superhero movie you've ever heard. Odin is like the El character and Thor is like the Baal character because Baal is like this god of thunder. Now, does he have a hammer? He has some cool gadgets that Kothar gives him. But anyway, back to Baal. So he goes and he combats Yam. He destroys it. But then this guy named Mott gets really upset. And Mott is death. And that's actually the Hebrew word for death. And Mott and Baal get into it and Baal's killed. And Anat, she's this female character, she cries out. And listen to what she says. She shouts, The bull El, the father, the word of the God of mercy, thy begetter, over the furrows of the fields, O Shaphash, over the furrows of the fields, let El set thee. As for the Lord of the furrows of his plowing, where is Baal? Where is the prince? The Lord of earth, Isyabel, where is the prince? That's shouted out in the Baal epic. It was this huge ritual. It was like a temple ceremony. And they cried out, where is the prince? Well, Anat summons a bunch of divine beings and they go down into Sheol and they pull Baal out of hell and Baal gets resurrected and he ascends into heaven and Anat's like this really big heroic figure. And the name, where is the prince, is a lot of scholars say that's probably what Yisavel means. In other words, it was a very ritually laden name that was associated with the worship of Baal. Now, to me, that kind of sounds like Jesus. We have Jesus comes from the heavens. He combats death and hell. He dies. He's resurrected. And we have this woman figure who says, where is he? Where have you laid him? In other words, Anat and Yisabel are kind of playing that role that Mary plays. And so the gospel writers put everything in its place, and they say, no, Mary's the real deal. Now, work with me here. I think Mormon is putting this in here because Mormon knows the Old Testament. He has all these records, and he knows what Baal worship is, and he knows that that, to him and to the Old Testament editors and authors, that's going to be an apostate religion. And so all over in the Old Testament, like a bunch of times, 20 times or so, it talks about whoring after false gods. Well, what is Corianton doing? He's going into the land of Siren to an apostate, to a woman with this name, which literally means, where is the prince? Now, it can also mean unchaste. It can mean a lot of things. But in essence, this is a type. And this is Mormon saying, it's more than just him being immoral. He's headed down the road of apostasy. He's going the wrong direction, and Isabel is an anti-Mary character. Now, Siren, there's a lot of different ways on that. That is in a couple places in the Old Testament, and we don't know which one it is. So I'm just going to share this. Verse 3, he went over to the land of Siren. It could mean Sirion. If you go to Jeremiah 46.4, the word is translated as brigandine. Now, what's a brigandine? It's a protection that you would wear over your chest of small plates kind of like plate armor. 
Or it could mean Shirion, which is Deuteronomy 3.9, which is another name for Mount Hermon. And it was considered a breastplate. In both instances, the word siren, if it's coming from this Phoenician root, could mean that which covers your heart. And if you think about how this ties into Isabel and everything Bryce has been saying about your heart and your eyes, he's going to the place where he should have his heart covered, and he takes off his armor, and he goes and he follows apostasy. Now, that's a little five-minute geek out on the name, but I don't think it's coincidental, and here's why. He only gives us six. Mormon's given us six names. Why is he giving us this girl's name? And Isabel is too closely related to Jezebel to ignore the pattern here. Yeah. He's inviting us to go to our Old Testament, dig it out, read it, and ask ourselves, what's the lesson? What are the Isabels in our life? So I would suggest what he's doing is twofold. Mormon's telling the reader to go back in time and find a pattern in the scriptures in the past, but that also means go forward to your life. Mormon is pleading with us to find patterns in the scriptures that are applicable to our lives. And he saw something in the symbolism of his son going to Isabel that rang true of a story in the Old Testament and is certainly going to ring true in our day. So don't miss the pattern. And so by using the word Isabel, he doesn't have to tell the whole story of Jezebel because he'll get us to go find the story of Jezebel and make a connection. So when watch for those anomalies in the scriptures. Watch for Mormon, who never names very many people. When he names a woman, there is significance to it, and see if you can go find that significance, because he's trying to say, hey, I'm going to tell a story in the past simply by referring to a name so that you can apply that story to this circumstance as well as to your own. Brilliant scripture study technique there. Good stuff. Okay, he's got some concerns. Uh, Corianne's like, is it fair that God's, this whole justice thing, it seems like he's got another concern too. Look what he says in verse 17 of Alma 39. Alma says, is not a soul at this time as precious unto God as he will be at the time of his coming? Is it not as easy that the plan of redemption should be made known to this people as well as unto their children? Is it not as easy at this time for the Lord to send his angel to declare these tidings unto us as unto our children or as after the time of his coming? In essence, I think Corianne's struggling with this idea of, well, is God going to make this known? Could he do this? And remember our, our last couple of podcasts ago, you talked about how the Spirit speaks logically to you. Of course, it makes sense that Jesus would visit the Americas. But it seems like Corianne's struggling with that. And then 40, 41, 42, this idea of restoration, resurrection, fairness, those are kind of his questions, aren't they, Bryce? Yeah, it has to do with, okay, the, the fate of everyone's soul. He's worried about other people. He's worried about himself. He seems to be worried about a fate of the soul. So in chapter 40, we're going to focus on the spirit world. And then in chapter 41, we'll kind of go on what comes after the resurrection. And then 42 seems to be, here is the mechanism that makes all of that work. So 41, he says, I can see you're worried about the soul between death and resurrection. So let's talk about that. Let me tell you what I know, and I love that Alma says, I don't know. You count up how many times in chapter 40, Alma says, I don't know, I'm giving this as my opinion, which I love. Prophets don't have all the answers all the time. So Alma says, let me tell you what I do know, and this is what I do know. The angel has made it very clear. Here's what happens to the righteous. So verse 12, if you have been righteous in this life, you are received into a state of happiness a paradise, a state of rest, a state of peace, 
where they shall rest from all their troubles and all their cares and all their sorrows. And then verse 13, he talks about the wicked. And then he says, they shall be cast into outer darkness. Now, clearly, this cannot be taken as the definitive declaration on everything that goes on in the spirit world, because we all know that there's a whole lot of teaching that's going on, and Alma's not addressing that. He's talking about the fact that some go and get to rest because they chose righteous, they gave up the natural man, they were diligent in life, and their reward is to rest from their labors in a state of peace. But those who were diligently against the truth, they will go to outer darkness and weep and wail and gnash their teeth because of their own iniquity. And what do you do with outer darkness in this sense as far as doctrinally, Bryce? This is what we call hell. This is, do Mormons believe in hell? You better believe we do. And we need to be very careful to, to declare. Sometimes we think that the celestial kingdom is a place where bad people go to be punished. And that's not the case. The celestial kingdom is a kingdom of glory. It's a reward for having done something really good. You don't go to the celestial kingdom because you were bad and evil and deserve a punishment. But there is a place designed for that, and that is outer darkness in the spirit world. And that's what Alma's talking about here. And if we really want to talk about outer darkness, we've got to talk about Elder Talmage's quotation at the church's centennial. In General Conference of 1930, he says, one thing we've learned in the last hundred years is that hell has an entrance and an exit, and no one will be kept in hell longer than is necessary to help them change. As soon as they change, as soon as they don't want to be there and they change the reasons they are there, they get out of hell. They get out of that state of wickedness, and they can change. And so I wonder if Alma's trying to say that the sooner we change, the better it will be for us here in this life and in the eternity. Did you ever do that as a parent when my kids were acting up? I have, I have all boys, Bryce, and so I don't know what it's like to raise daughters, but you know, when the two get into it, I'm like, okay, you guys go to your room. Well, how long? Till you guys are done fighting. And so my kids are older now, but I have this fun video of my two oldest I don't know if you ever did this, and maybe this is child abuse, but I would actually, I would have them hug each other, and they had to sing, families can be together forever. And literally, I have video of this, and one of them's crying because he's so mad at the other brother, and they're singing it, and I'm just laughing hysterically. But I do this because I'm like, hey, as soon as you guys are nice, you can go play, right? And anyway, maybe I'm just taking it too far, but it's some of my favorite memories. They laugh about it now, but there's nothing like a, you know, a seven-year-old and a six-year-old hugging each other until they can get along, right? And I think that's what Jesus wants. He want, you, you go to time out, but it's not forever, right? I want you to figure it out, and then let's go, right? Yeah. And so why not make the decisions today to be nice? So I think that's what chapter 40 is, is just, okay, so let's talk about that state between death and resurrection. But then comes chapter 41. Now, before we do 41, should we do taking home that God who gave him life Let's really do. quick? Let's, Let's just do, do that really because quick. Because there are numerous references in the Book of Mormon that seem to suggest by insinuation, not necessarily by direct declaration, that seem to suggest that when we die, we face God, that we stand in the presence of the Lord. But I think that can be a little misleading because we truly believe that the spirit world is, is an extension of the test of mortality. Mortality isn't over. Hence, we preach the gospel to the spirits, and they have a chance to earn salvation. They have a chance to change. So if all of a sudden you got all the answers to the test when you died, then how would the spirit world be the rest of the test? Yeah. That doesn't seem fair. However, there are some quotations in the Book of Mormon, and so just to kind of counterbalance, rather than just making—just to be fair, let's read some other quotations, Mike, and 
and just make sure that we are kind of fair to the doctrine. Right. And I don't want to be overly dogmatic on this. I certainly don't know. I haven't experienced this. So I'm speaking from just as a student of the scriptures trying to work my way through this. But we've got this, you know, this is from Orson Pratt. And he says, to go into the presence of God is not necessarily to be placed within a few yards or rods within a short distance of his person. Or President George Hugh Cannon said this, Alma, when he says that the spirits of all men, as soon as they are departed from this mortal body, are taken home to the God who gave them life, has the idea doubtless in his mind that our God is omnipresent, not in his own personality, but through his minister, the Spirit. He does not intend to convey the idea that they are immediately ushered into the personal presence of God. He evidently is using that phrase in a qualified sense. And then one more, President Heber C. Kimball, he says, as for my going into the immediate presence of God when I die, I do not expect it. But I expect to go into the world of spirits and associate with my brethren and preach the gospel in the spiritual world and prepare myself in every necessary way to receive my body again and then enter through the wall into the celestial world. So there's a few quotes there. You know, I don't know the answer, but I read that. Verse 11 to me is kind of saying this. It's leading me to this conclusion that we are all going to be brought back into the presence of God. Righteous, wicked, everybody in between. But when we die, we'll be brought into a, into a new state. Clearly, verse 13 applies. There is darkness, but clearly verse 12 applies. There is light. And so there's opposites. And Alma's expressing this. And in the midst of this, like Bryce said, Alma's also expressing, guys, verse 20. Some of this is my opinion. But then he does say, hey, an angel laid some of this stuff out. So Alma's working through this. He's had revelation, but he doesn't have all the gaps filled in. But I think his point is to lead up to chapter 41. And I think one of the great gifts of the Book of Mormon is Alma chapter 41, where we talk about the law of restitution, that your reward in the end is dramatically connected to what you wanted in life. And so if, if Corianton seems to be concerned about how God is going to handle restitution, how God is going to punish someone who didn't deserve to be punished, or reward someone who didn't deserve to be rewarded, that seems to be the point. And so Alma chapter 41 is what I call the law of restitution, that everything will be restored according to God's law of restitution. And it really boils down to what did you want? What did you want in life? And that will be what you are restored to. And may I suggest that everyone gets what they truly desire. Everyone gets what they really in their soul want. And that's why Heavenly Father has multiple kingdoms, because there are people who do not want to go to the celestial kingdom. And it would be horribly cruel to send them there, because they would not be happy there. They do not want to be there. They do not glory in the things that celestial people glory in, and so they shouldn't be in the celestial kingdom. And so if they, because they want something else, Heavenly Father has prepared something else. And so we are here to decide, what is it that we really want? What do you desire? And so in, he says in verse 3, Alma chapter 41, verse 3, it is requisite with the justice of God that men should be judged according to their works. And if their works were good in this life, and the desires of their hearts were good, that they should be in the last day restored unto that which is good. In other words, if you truly desire celestial things, you need to stop worrying about it because you will be restored to celestial things. But you can't fool God. If you go to church every week, but you really don't want celestial things, 
You can't fool him. You will be restored to what you truly want. He gets a little bit more specific in verse 5. The one raised to happiness according to his desires of happiness. Or good according to his desires of good. And the other of evil, to evil according to his desires of evil. For he has desired to do evil all the days long. Even so, he shall have his reward of evil when the night cometh. That's the rule. If you wanted to do good, your reward will be good. You will get what you want. Let me take you back to Alma chapter 29. Now, when we did Alma 29 in our podcast, we focused on um, tearing yourself down and finding joy in other people. So we kind of didn't really talk about this same idea that's presented in Alma 29. So Alma begins by saying, Oh, that I were a wish and angel, and I could shake people into repentance. I wish I could force them to see the light. I wish I could scare them into choosing what was right. I wish I could shake the earth until they repented. And then he says, no, 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 that's not right. And then in verse 4 of Alma 29, I know that he granteth unto men according to their desires. Whether it be unto death or unto life, I know that he allotteth unto men, yea, decrees which to them are unalterable according to their wills whether they will be unto salvation or unto destruction. In other words, God gives you exactly what you want, and I recognize that not everyone wants the celestial kingdom. Therefore, why should I force everyone to repent? Why should I shake them into repentance if that's not God's way? Because he wants to reward them according to their desires. They wouldn't wouldn't be happy. They wouldn't be happy in the celestial kingdom. Verse 5, I know that good and evil have—this is Alma 29 again, verse 5—I know that good and evil have come before all men, and he knoweth and though whoever doesn't know good and evil, he's innocent, and we'll deal with that later. But to him is given to his desires. Whether he desireth good or evil, life or death, joy or remorse of conscience. In other words, he's saying to his son Coriantin, you can't fool the Lord. No one can fool the Lord. And whatever they truly desire will be their eternal reward. Joseph Smith taught happiness is the object and design of our existence. And there's a lot of ways to take that, but I would suggest that what he meant was everyone's happiness is the object of this whole life. You will go where you are happiest. So let's be very clear, Corianton. If you choose sin, if you want sin, you are foregoing the happiness that righteousness brings. You cannot be restored to a state of righteousness if what you desire is sin. But the opposite is also true. If you make a mistake, like you have, Corianton, if you've transgressed and made a mistake, but, in, but you truly do want what's right. So I love the culmination in verse 10. Alma chapter 41, verse 10. Don't suppose because it's been spoken of restoration that you'll be restored from sin to happiness. Behold, I say unto you, wickedness never was happiness. And I think that is a generally mis-not-believed truth. There's a lot of youth, there's a lot of people that think sin is fun and that they wish they could sin because sin is fun. But the reality is sin is not fun. And anyone who desires sin is desiring something that is counter to the happiness that God would like to give them. There's this idea in the Book of Mormon that's taught that there's temporary joy in choosing wrong, but not long-lasting happiness. And I think he's trying to draw that distinction there. It kind of reminds me of a quote that we've read it before about heaven working backwards. It's the C.S. Lewis quote from The Great Divorce. 
So those of you who heard it, bear with a little repetition because it, it's worth repeating and it stands as a witness to what Alma's trying to teach in chapter 40, it, it, well, in all of these chapters about the idea that heaven once obtained works backwards and changes pain into joy and hell once obtained works backwards and ch- changes what we thought would be the pleasure of sin into misery. Because it really does have to do with your desires were for something that was wrong, therefore it's in in the end going to be a pain. Mike, do you have that quote? Let's read that whole quote again. So good. You cannot in your present state understand eternity, but you can get some likeness of it if you say that both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. All this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. All their life on earth too will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even the agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me but have this, and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why, at the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. And that's the law of restitution. It's because that's what you wanted. You can't say, I want, to defy law. I, do, I want to defy the laws of God and be happy. I want sin to be pleasurable. Sin will never bring the ultimate happiness that you want it to bring. Yeah. I, I want to throw this out, and I'm going to geek out on the word paradise and tie it into everything Bryce is teaching here. And so I'm going to go to the word that's found, and we're back in Alma 40. So look in Alma 40, verse 12. It shall come to pass that the spirits of those who are righteous will be received into a state of happiness, which is called paradise, a state of rest. Here's, here's my take on this. I think that it's bigger than even what our texts are saying, our sacred texts. Our sacred texts, the Holy Scriptures, are touching on this, but I want to just expand this idea a little bit that this paradise is, is big and wide, and there, there's degrees. It's kind of like this life, right? Have you ever been in a place where you know there's darkness, and yet in the midst of that darkness, there was a time when I was on my mission in a very rough place, and you could hear gunfire, and yet in that place, there were people trying to live good lives. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you can live in a place that has peace and prosperity, and yet there can be darkness there as well. And there's all these spectrums in between. Well, my take on paradise or the next realm, like I said, I haven't seen it, but it's essentially this. It's this merciful God that's trying to invite us and entice us to want to do good. And so the word is actually a Greek word, and it was picked up with, with the Persians. When, when Judaism kind of intersected with Persia after the exile, and this guy, you don't need to know his name, but his name is Xenophon. He's this, this Greek historian. He picks up this word, and it, it gets injected into Judaism, and it's this idea of paradise. Uh, paradiso is the word. And that's the word that Jesus uses in the dative sense in Luke 23, 43, when he's on the cross and he says to that guy, today you're going to be with me in paradise. And a lot of Christians take this notion of, oh, okay, I'm good on my death. I just say, hey, Jesus, take the wheel. I'm good. I'm in heaven because they've kind of equated paradise with heaven. 
And Joseph Smith goes, no, guys, that's not what it's saying. What he's saying is you're going to be in a place where you can be taught, where you can be taken and nurtured and taught. And that word, that Greek word paradiso, literally means a park. That word, uh, because the very rich and famous back then would have these beautiful immaculate parks and lawns and all kinds of shrubbery and flowers and those kinds of things. And so that's the word that's used. And then it later gets picked up and injected into the idea of the Garden of Eden. It's this beautiful place. And I came across this quote about Jedediah Morgan Grant. He was in the first presidency and just wore himself out in the service of the church. Um, It's a fascinating story because Jedediah Morgan Grant dies and Heber C. Kimball goes and gives him a blessing and he brings him back. And Jedediah is kind of ticked. He's like, bro, I was in a good place. And there's some fascinating stuff in this quote. One of the things was um, his little daughter, Margaret, was, was killed on the plains as he came west. And he promised his wife that he would go back and, and get her and bring her to Salt Lake and bury her. She was buried out on the plains because they, they had to move. And when he went back to get her, uh, the wolves had gotten her. Well, he has this vision where he's in heaven and he sees his daughter on, on the lap of his wife. And it says this, in heaven, he saw the righteous gathered together in the spirit world, and there were no wicked spirits among the righteous. And he saw his wife. She was the first person that came to him, and he saw many others that he knew. But he did not have a conversation with any except for his wife, Carolyn. She came to him, and he said that she looked beautiful, and she had their little child that died on the plains in her arms. And she said, Mr. Grant, here is little Margaret. You know that the wolves ate her up, but it didn't hurt her. Here she is. She's all right. To my astonishment, Jedediah Grant said, when I looked at the families, there was a deficiency in some. There was a lack, for I saw families that would not be permitted to come and dwell together because they had not honored their calling here. He asked his wife, Carolyn, where Joseph and Hiram and Father Smith and others were, and she replied, they've gone ahead to perform and transact business for us. The same as when Brother Brigham and his brethren left winter quarters and came here to search out a home. They came to find a location for us. He sees families put back together. And I'm going to share this whole thing in the show notes because I'm not going to read the whole thing, but we'll give you the link. But then I just, I love this. He describes to Heber C. Kimball what he sees in the spirit world or in paradise. And listen to what he says, quote, in regards to gardens, says Brother Grant, I have seen some good gardens on this earth, but I have never seen any that compare to those that were there. I saw flowers of numerous kinds and some 50 to 100 different colors, flowers growing upon one stalk. We have many kind of flowers here on earth, and I suppose those very articles came from heaven or they would not be here. He describes the beauty of the gardens and, those, and, and, and the surroundings there. And I share this with this notion of paradise because I think it ties into what Bryce is saying. I think some people want goodness, but they don't know how to get it. I think some people are born in circumstances where maybe they have such abuse or such chaos in their lives, they never really get a fair shake. And so in my take, and this is Mike Day packaging of this idea of paradise, is that when we die, I think this is God giving us another chance to continue to grow. Now, I'm not preaching second chance salvation. I'm not saying that if you have the gospel given to you and you just reject it and you choose wickedness, that these chapters are wrong. I think they're right. But what I think this verse and the notion of paradise and what Jedediah Morgan Grant's vision is teaching to me, the, the message that it's speaking to me is that we have a God who loves us, 
and has a place prepared for us where we can grow and continue to grow and to progress. And I can't help but wonder the fact that Alma is teaching this to Corianton. I don't think this is a club over his head trying to, to force him to choose righteousness. I don't read it that way at all. I read this as, son, I know your heart is good. And we know that because Corianton does repent. He does change. He goes on future missions. The rest of his life seems to be a choice of righteousness. So I wonder if in all of this context, the way we need to read this is to say, son, you've made a mistake. Yes, it's a big mistake, and it needs some fixing. But I see that your heart is good, that you want what's right. So let me tell you that your righteous desires will be restored. If you're worried that your sin has ruined your chance for salvation, let me teach you that it's more about what you want than what you did one time when you were weak. I like that. It's more about, son, I I, I sense that you want righteousness, that you want to be in the rest of God, that you want paradise, that you want God in your life. So repent, do the things that you need to do to repent, but trust the Lord that he will restore to you the desires of your heart. Now, chapter 42 is what makes that possible? What makes it possible for someone who has, who, who has sinned a very grievous sin? I mean, this is a biggie, Corianton. But what makes it possible that you can be restored to righteousness because you wanted righteousness, but you made a major mistake? And that's what chapter 42 seems to be clarifying. Alma's trying to say it's, it, mercy is possible because of the Redeemer, that without the Redeemer— Mercy can't rob justice. Justice can't rob mercy, and mercy can't rob justice. But because the Lord has provided a Redeemer, there's a law, and there's a punishment affixed, and God has to follow the law, and all those things that we saw Father Lehi teach back in 2 Nephi 2. But because there's a Redeemer, that God can be merciful, that mercy can satisfy the demands of justice, and pay the penalty for the mistake you made, so that the righteous desires of your heart can dictate your final state, rather than a mistake shouldn't define what you did. And so I, th- I love this. I love what he's teaching is that trust that mercy can satisfy the demands of justice. Now, you need to move forward with your righteous desires. You need to let no longer let you know, this mo- the, the carnal man inside you win out and sin prevails, you need your righteous desires to really dictate how the rest of your life goes. So I think he's just trying throwing in that you need Jesus and this is how it works, but it's still going to be possible for you to be restored to a righteous state. Yeah. I like that phrase in the fourth line of verse 13. It's only on the conditions of repentance and it's only middle of verse 15 because God himself atones for the sins of the world. To Alma, he's describing Yahweh, Jesus as God himself. And like you said, he's quoting Lehi in verse 17. And this is an interesting phrase, Bryce. What do you do with this? End of verse 13, end of verse 22. If these things don't happen, God would cease to be God. What do you think this is teaching us about God? There is an order and that God follows the rules. And it's not so much to speculate could God fall from his place? I don't think that's the intent here, is to suggest that God could fall from his place, as much as it's to say God follows the rules. And he could not extend mercy unless there was a willing volunteer who took that upon himself. So he cannot follow the rules and extend mercy without a Redeemer, and that God himself will follow the rules. 
It kind of goes to agency. If he's trying to say is, if God takes away your agency, he would cease to be God. Now, you don't need to speculate whether or not that's going to happen. It's just a way of saying that God follows the rules, and he will follow the rules. And you can trust that our Heavenly Father will follow the rules because he's not going to cease to be God. He will follow the rules, which means there needs to be repentance when there's sin. There needs to be justice. But it also means that he can forgive the sin because a Redeemer satisfied those rules. And he doesn't have to choose justice or mercy. He can offer both. I also like verse 27, Bryce. He's not going to compel me. We believe in this God who says, I want you to love me, but I'm not going to force it on you. Alma 42 is so good. There's so much here. It is. And, and, and I love the picture that it paints of Heavenly Father, that he will follow the rules. He won't force you. He has provided everything that you need, but the choice is yours. And it comes down to what do you want? The, the great question Heavenly Father is asking his children is, what do you want? Now that, it's unfair to feel like you have to answer that question on one particular day. That's why we need mortality, because there are moments in our lives where we want celestial things, and there are moments where I want lesser things. So the Lord says, look, I'm going to send you down to mortality. I'm going to let you educate your desires, but you need to know what is it that you desire. In the end, what do you want? Do you want a celestial life? Do, would you be happy doing the things that celestial people do? Or is there something else that you want? I think that's what Alma's asking Coriantin and all of us. Is that what you want? Is that the life you want? A life of a harlot? What do you want? And I think that's a great question for all of us to answer. What is it that you truly desire? Because there are three kingdoms, and the Heavenly Father is bound and determined to provide whatever you find happiness, whatever happiness you truly desire. That will be your reward. It won't be God standing at the gate saying you don't deserve to go into the celestial kingdom. It will be God suggesting you won't be happy here. I really like that Mormon gives us Alma 4930. Yeah. That he puts Coriantin in the list of the missionaries that were just solid. So my take, I don't even know if Coriantin is his name. Maybe that was a word, that, a name that was used because Mormon's protecting him, right? Yeah. It's like if I tell a story about this guy and I say, we're going to call him John Doe. And, Protect the innocent. Yeah. Yep. And, but I really like with your kids, read Alma 4930. Yeah. There's hope. So here's the deal. That's the end of the conversation with his children. The rest of Alma, we get into a couple sets of wars. And there's a lot of lessons here. And there's huge, huge swaths of material. There's two lessons on this. The first is going to be Alma 43 through 52. The, the final one in Alma is 53 through 63. Bryce and I are not going to do a verse-by-verse commentary, but I think what Bryce and I are going to do is just pull some really cool, relevant passages and instances in these wars where you can see how it applies today in 2020. And let me set it up. The major war that begins in 46 begins when a man among the Nephites wants to be king isn't chosen, gets upset, gathers his forces, and then fights against the people who didn't choose him to be their king. Does that sound familiar? Can you think of anyone else who wanted to be king, wasn't chosen, got upset, gathered his forces, and now fights against the very people who didn't choose him to be king? In other words, this is not a Nephite-Lamanite war. This is our war with Lucifer. It's cosmic. 
And the way to defeat Satan is the way they defeat Amalekiah. Satan's tactics are Amalekiah's tactics. And that's why these war chapters are absolutely crucial, because they reveal Satan's tactics and how to combat them. I will boldly proclaim that our perseverance, our protection from Satan in the last days, will be as miraculous as the stripling warrior's preservation if we follow the advice and do the things that the stripling warriors did. That's why these war chapters are here, is we can be preserved in this battle as miraculously as the stripling warriors. But you have to be able to say, I knew the strategies, I was prepared for them, I won the war. So that's a little hint, a little taste of what is coming up in the next few podcasts. Before we wrap it up, I need to do this more, but I just want to thank so many people that make this possible. Adam Bradley for their website. Thank you, Adam. Jeff Harmon. Jeff, we would not be able to even know how to do the podcast if it weren't for your expertise on how to make a podcast happen and all your help there. Uh, Rachel Hood for the logo and all your work there, and also Sonia for the production. So That's Sonia Day, yeah. Mike's wife. We're very appreciative of all that she does, and she makes us look better than you can even imagine. She's a wizard. So yeah, Sonia, thank you so much. With that, we also want to invite you, the listener, if, the, if any of this resonates with you, share it with the people that you know in your circle of influence. We've had a lot of messages, people coming back to us saying, um, someone on Instagram shared something that was on the podcast and I listened and I'm so grateful. And so I just got to tell you, you people out there sharing, you may not be hearing this, but we are that your sharing does matter. And with that, we'll see you guys next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.